Hey, I'm Danny Pincus, the Brand and Partnerships Director here at Future Women. I'm super excited to present this special series to you in partnership with Westfield and Dove. The Westfield Women in Conversation series has been on the road for the past few months. We've travelled to 11 Westfield centres across Australia with some of the country's most recognisable women. Journalist, TV presenter, author and hashtag crap housewife, Jessica Rowe. Performer, radio host and glitter lover, M. Rassiano. Journalist, 60 Minutes and Weekend Today presenter, Alison Langdon. And author and domestic violence advocate, Rosie Batty. This series has been dedicated to celebrating real beauty and empowering confidence in women. You'll hear from these inspiring women who have found their liberation through change in the face of adversity and life's challenges. We spoke to them on topics of style, ageing, motherhood, about relationships with other women, their families, their friends, and most importantly, themselves. Enjoy this discussion with Rosie Batty and Nine reporter Samantha Hethwood at Westfield Carringdale in Queensland. Rosie, welcome. Thank you so much. Can I ask you why you've decided to be a part of this Women in Conversation series? Look, I think the opportunity to talk um, to other women is is a really important part of my journey as well. Um, it can be really isolating. Um, if you're a mum, it can be an isolating. If you're recovering from loss or tragedy, and I think the more we are able to share our experiences and our views of life and how we cope, how we push through, um, it gives us further strength. And I think that that's what's really important, gaining strength from each other. When we see something on the TV, and I think a lot of people here today probably remember seeing me on the news, you can't imagine how you can ever recover or cope or live through something that's so hideous. And it, it, it does change your life and it will never go back to being what it was. And you would change it if you could in a heartbeat. But we have enormous strength within us and with the support of people that love us, our families and our friends, we can we can reach a place that we don't just survive, we actually find a sense of purpose and meaning that can change your life in, a, in positive ways that you would never anticipate. And I think although my journey, I wouldn't wish on anybody, um, I have never been I've never had so much purpose and meaning. The hardest part when you experience something so horrific is that people don't know what to say and they don't know how to look at you. And when they look at you, they look at you with pity, dread, fear that they will upset you. Many people will avoid you or deliberately not speak to you because they don't want to treat you. So life changes and your relationships with people change. And yet I'm still that ordinary person that needs friends, needs family. You know, and, and so what I have hoped I've been able to achieve 
is now people greet me with enthusiasm. They see me and they're pleased and happy to see me and they don't fear coming up to me and saying, hi, Rosie, I admire you. I've not had anybody come up to me yet that sits behind their Facebook pages trolling me. So the positive reinforcement I get, the encouragement I receive has lifted my spirits on so many occasions I couldn't count. And it is really what's got me through. Um, so I think that we don't talk about grief. We don't talk about anxiety and trauma and PTSD and all the things that so many of us are dealing with. And one of the things that has always concerned me is that people see me on the TV and see me as this very calm, collected person. Yet many people, very good friends and family, have seen me utterly distraught, screaming, shouting, so confused because I couldn't even explain the extent of my behaviour and the remorse and self-loathing I experienced afterwards. So many people would never know because that was in my bedroom at night on my own, where you go and the braveness and the projected image of yourself crumbles and you're left alone with just you and your pillow. And that's when a lot of the braveness falls away and you can cry. And so I think that for me, I would like to think I've always tried to be authentic. I've always tried to be open and honest because I've always been that person. But what comes with being recognized is people's judgment, how they expect someone like me to behave, the judgment that comes with that. And I've always compared myself to Lindy Chamberlain. We did not like the way that Lindy behaved when she lost her baby. We couldn't believe a dingo would be capable of such a thing. Her stoicism, we judged her for it. And I, you know, we put her in prison. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that if I'm able to debunk some of those myths that go with what grief should look like, mm -hmm. that how people can and do recover, they may never be the same person. And look at, you've got wonderful examples like the, the, the Morecams of people who, through their pain and their loss, seek to make change for others. And it gives you, it gives you more than you can ever imagine. And the people that come with you on that journey and the people that identify with you because of that journey means you're not alone because it can be an incredibly lonely, isolating path. I think it's being authentic. You're not trying to be somebody that you're not. And I can tell you that in those Im immediate moments, the Salvation Army and your neighbors and the community do an amazing job with casseroles, toilet paper, groceries. The kindness is overwhelming. The physical need to do something you know, my windows were cleaned, my toilet was repaired, my grass was mowed, everything was done for me in a practical sense. 
But the emotional support you need is more complicated and more difficult and more challenging. And that's where it starts to become difficult because people do move on with their lives and you hate them for it because your life can't just change, you know, you are stuck. And as the reality of what you're stuck with continues to sink in over the weeks and the months and then the years. And I guess some of your family and friends, your inner circle, would have also felt quite guilty. I think that's exactly the wedge that can creep in between some of the people who you were very good friends with. And I, I think of the groups of women that were mums that I knew because of we shared our children joining, starting school together in prep. So the pain I felt as I saw them in that first year as 11-year-olds turning into 12-year-olds and looking at graduating primary school into going into secondary, I could not believe how much the children changed in one year. It was so painful for me. And yet the children needed to see me because I was their connection to Luke. And they were little kids affected by a tragedy that no one knew what to say to them, how to support the kids. And so that first year was incredibly difficult. And all I think you can do is be as honest as possible and say, you know, put the elephant in the room up there, have opportunities to talk, even if tears come, even if you're, it's not about avoiding pain we'll and not about make, not making me cry. Mm -hmm. It's being comfortable with those tears. Mm -hmm. It's being comfortable in realizing that that opportunity for emotion, instead of having to suppress it and being brave, it's okay. And to sit with whatever is coming and being that person that perhaps sometimes is just there at what they would think is the wrong time, but maybe it's the right time for emotional stuff to come out. But it's not everybody can handle it. And honestly, I don't know whether I could myself, mm -hmm. but I do know that I've learned a lot for what I think I've needed. And, you know, people have been amazing to me. And I think in the end, we are humans. We need social connection. Mm -hmm. And when you are depressed, that's when you don't reach out. You do sit at home alone, feeling like everyone has forgotten you, when really, they don't know that you're sitting at home alone, yeah. feeling self-doubt, feeling that you're not good enough, and all the other negative self-talk. Mm -hmm. And so I've also learned over the past year particularly, as I have felt more alone than ever, it's up to me to take those steps. And, um, and that's what I continue to do. And now that I'm able to do that more, again, the quality of my relationships and where I'm sitting is, is so much better. 
So one of the things I always correct people with is I never actually married this man and I never ever lived with him. I never did leave because it was my home and I raised my son as a single mum. So I find that the assumption that I was doing all the right things by leaving, something that's really important to understand, that when you share a child together, there is no leaving. Yes, yeah. Because um, the violence follows you. It takes different shapes. And there's no guarantee that it will end. And so I think that a lot of us, and I think when I started talking out, we did a lot of victim blaming. We always said, well, why doesn't she just leave? I was very determined that we would move from that question to why is he choosing to be violent? Yes. And the reason that question of why doesn't she just leave is so um, disheartening is because that is when you are most likely to be murdered where the violence is more likely to escalate and you are at higher risk. Because the emotions And the one woman so... a week that is being murdered is when she has done that or is planning to do that. So the degree of fear and risk is incredibly real. And it's something that you will be encouraged to do. You'll be encouraged to take those steps. And you know what? When you are in an incredibly dangerous situation, and sometimes you don't even realise the danger you're in, there are no other options, but it doesn't guarantee your safety. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the pressures that women have faced through child protection, through police, through other sources, is the assumption that because you leave, all of a sudden your life gets better. Mm. Well, then we get dragged into family law courts, then we get dragged into other court systems. And you find that the violence takes on different forms and becomes systemic abuse. Mm -hmm. So the journey is an incredibly difficult one. And the perhaps perception of somehow being a victim implies that you're weak or vulnerable when the reality is you're incredibly courageous, you're incredibly resilient and resourceful, have enormous guts because you're managing mm -hmm. what other people would be managing in a war zone. Yeah. And so I think that it's really appreciating that this is an incredibly complex area and a very difficult place. And when you understand also the impacts on children, where whether they are being directly um, experiencing violence or not, they will always be affected and traumatised mm -hmm. and it will always have an effect on their potential mm -hmm. and their well-being. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I think we are shifting is most definitely the appreciation of how prevalent this issue is. One in three women will experience physical violence. Mm -hmm. We're now starting to see people who would otherwise have blamed that woman for being out in the park late at night or wearing a short skirt or a, a, a neckline that's too plunging. We're now starting to realize that's victim blaming. 
And that actually, as a woman and as women, safety is a right that we should assume. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But we are all born, and at the start of our birth, we begin to be conditioned to take responsibility for our safety. And the man, through the privilege and entitlement, see us potentially as possessions and property. And this is through generations of all of us. And that, you know, that is very definitely shifting. But as that shifts, and as our society starts, is more and more threatened by women being empowered, having equality, it really challenges everybody. Yeah including us it does and i think that's these are really great conversations to have because we need to be having them with our grandkids our children we need to be having it with our peers with our friends as we as we view the world with more openness and more insight and if i can as my journey has opened my eyes and i've continued to learn so much more about family violence and the dynamics. And I've realized that a more gender equal world will mean there is going to be less violence towards women and that it will take generations mm. to see this change. And that becomes overwhelming for me when I'm contacted daily by women caught in the system or experiencing violence that they don't feel they can ever escape from. Mm -hmm. And when I meet women around Australia, as I do, who've had to change their identity, relocate and hope they're never tracked down because they will never, ever be safe. Mm. To be captured through social media, to be tracked down through technology, mm -hmm. to not being able to be seen in a public space. I mean, it's, it's a world that a lot of us would never understand and realise, but yet it's so common. And, um, you know, that was very confronting to me. Women have an amazing talents. Um, women have amazing qualities, untapped potential. And for some, it's about recognizing and believing in that. And others were further along the journey. But as collective women, we need to be supporting each other and we need to be encouraging each other to aspire to be all that we can be and not holding ourselves back mm -hmm. because we do struggle with a lot of self-doubt. Um, we are more likely to think we can't do it rather than just assume, of course, we could. Mm -hmm. And so I think this opportunity for women to embrace their potential, to be encouraged to think big, um, it's, it, it's collective, and I think that makes a big difference for some of us, and, and I know it does for me. But I think we also get a lot from sharing, and I think that's a woman's strength. We are able to share. We know that when we become mums, we share tips around whether it's breastfeeding or whatever, the journey of pregnancy, the journey of raising children, we share information, we support each other in ways that men have not. Mm -hmm. And when we look at the crisis of mental health and the astonishing statistics of men taking their lives, we can blame that a lot on toxic masculinity where men 
feel like they're failing. Intending to be this stoic, strong, silent type who cannot voice and cannot share what's going on inside. So we, you know, so for me, I think that the sharing that women have is why we can be and we are so resourceful and strong. And we need to, you know, look at how we encourage our men in our lives and the young men and our children to also have that emotional access to the vulnerability and, and, and where gender is no longer a badge mm-hmm. or of honor or a, an obstacle to overcome. Where a lot of people assume because I speak out about violence and I don't shy away from the fact that this is a gendered issue that affects way more women, mm-hmm. although it can affect men. It's way more women. Mm-hmm. But it, there's an assumption from that that I must dislike men. And I find that infuriating mm-hmm. because, of course, how could I hate men if I have a son that I adore mm. and adored and was proud of? How could I hate men when I have three brothers? who have fun- always been fantastic brothers in my life. How could I hate men when I have an amazing father mm. and great friends? And how could I hate men when I have a man that helped me write my book, Bryce, um, and great male friends? And so I think how do we have conversations that are difficult to have because they were supposed to be a dirty little secret kept behind closed doors and the shame was placed on the woman for being the victim. So how do we have those conversations that bring, include men in this discussion without alienating and appearing to blame, Mm -hmm. but not shying away from the reality? It's a really strange position to find myself in where my name, sometimes people, they recognize me, but they're not sure who I am. And then when I say who I am, they go, oh my God, you're that woman. Um, Most people, even if they don't recognize my name, remember what happened to Luke. So that that sense of, um, so I find myself in a strange, dare I say, celebrity kind of status where if I decided to go on Survivor or a celebrity gets me out of here, it would be so inappropriate. Um, I can't be too funny. I can't appear to be too happy because what does, you know, and I can still remember, don't smile so much on TV, um, on photos. But I think I'm through a lot of that to be able to be now more me. And I have to say that the first year was very much coming to terms with the fact I couldn't change this. No matter what I tried to do and how hard I worked, I couldn't undo the reality I would never see Luke again. And then the second year when I became Australian of the Year, I don't think anyone would ever know, and except to very few people who are around me, the demands on me. I had well over 2,000, if I, I'd stop counting, but over 2,000 requests to speak. I couldn't cope 
with the volume of demands and requests. I hadn't got an entourage of people. I wasn't prepared or equipped and I didn't have the previous experience. For that year, I spoke at over 250 events and that meant I, every day I was at the airport, every day I was traveling somewhere like a ping pong ball across Australia. And I was, in, I was determined to speak in front of all those professionals that should know more about family violence, that should have a better professional understanding. And instead of judging and blaming, they need to, to be, understand the complexities and have better training. So I spoke in front of teachers and principals, nurses and doctors and specialists, police and the judiciary. I spoke far and wide and I tried to create a ripple effect, but it took an enormous toll on me. And some people close to me saw what was happening. And the second year, I still was compelled and I spoke at 180 events. Oh my goodness. That's a bit less. But by this point, a lot of people are starting to get worried about my mental health and worried about what was happening. But I was so focused. So focused. And maybe I was scared about slowing down and stopping because whilst I could be so consumed, it meant I didn't have to stay at home alone. And maybe it was my way of coping but they didn't go without sometimes chain smoking, a bottle of wine, self-medicating, breaking down with friends and family, but I got through it. And I wouldn't change that, but I wouldn't be able to do it again. Mm -hmm. And now I have spent the last 18 months putting better balance into my life where I have had to sit home alone very uncomfortably with depression, desertion, abandonment, all of the things that I have struggled from nearly all my life since my mum died when I was six. I've had to understand that no one can fill that gap, that friends were there for as long as they could be and did the best they could. But they have their lives. They have their tragedy, they have their illness, they have their partners, they have their kids. And their kids are going through all the things that teenage kids do. I can't believe that some of them are already having sex, into drugs, you know, drinking alcohol and smoking. And I'm thinking, oh, what was I doing at that age? <laughs> They're way too young. Um, I'm challenged with the new relationship I need to find with those friends that have their kids. And for quite some time, I didn't want to see my brother's children, my nephew and my nieces. I couldn't bear to see my parents being grandparents to them. And I felt incredibly Wrong. guilty for having that resentment. But you know what? I went back to the UK at Christmas and I was the good auntie. 
I hid in cupboards playing sardines. I went to the play parks and slid down slides. And I loved being the auntie. And I am redeveloping some friendships, um, redefining some. And I think that I'm now in a space where I'm not looking for people to meet my need. It's about me being a friend too, and being somebody that people want to be around, not duty felt to support me, that they actually want to be in my company. Still enjoy going to concerts. I'm going to see Elton John, I'm going to see you too. I still like to go to the theater. I like good food, good wine, and I, if, you know, I can enjoy my life. Mm -hmm. And five years ago, I wasn't sure that I would ever enjoy it again. But through good friends, it's amazing how your humor doesn't leave you. And at the darkest of moments, you can laugh. Mm -hmm. And those friends who can bring that out in you are worth their weight in gold. Absolutely. And um, so, you know, I think that um, I've needed to take ownership of my own behavior. I don't want to upset people or feel entitled that they should understand that I, they should be sorry for me, that they should excuse me for just being angry. I don't like hurting people. So I continue to try to be that better person and I'm much better at it now. And realizing that I have been severely affected by this, not just at the time of Luke's death, but through 11 years of psychological torment. And I am indeed struggling with PTSD and trauma and acute anxiety. And although I don't know that I have all of those now, I will probably be affected by trauma for the rest of my life, but it no longer has me in its grip. Mm -hmm. I think I will always be anxious for the rest of my life, but I can manage that much better. I can take steps so that it doesn't overwhelm me and I can feel it growing and I have, a, I have more choice in how I handle that. Thanks for joining us and make sure you check out the rest of this inspiring series. If you're not already a member of Future Women and you're interested in finding out more about events like this one, please head to futurewomen.com to join the club.